You're listening to the Movie Crew Podcast, and tonight we're talking about Baz Luhrmann's 2001 musical, Moulin Rouge. You, no trouble. Me, Fifth Element. Supreme being. You will be a weapon. You will be a minister of death, praying for war. But until that day, you are cute. Sound off like you got a pair. No! Your spirit, all your money. And you get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. God is dead. Satan lives. The year is one. Fill your hand, you son of a bitch. This city is headed for a disaster of biblical proportion. What do you mean, biblical? What he means is Old Testament. Yes, Mayor. Real wrath of God type stuff. Dead fire and brimstone coming down from the skies. Rivers and seas boiling. Forty years of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes, the dead rising from the grave. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. That's hysteria. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Brian Elkins. With me tonight, my significant other, my wife, Lindsay. Hey, everybody. Uh, and uh, baby, you're here because everybody else just completely bailed out um, wanting to talk about Moulin Rouge. Nobody wants to talk about this film. Really? Yeah, nobody wanted to talk about it. I thought it was because you love me. Of course. That was <laughs> the first reason. Of course. Absolutely. Just assumed you were saving it for us. Oh, well, I'm sorry. As a special was... event. <laughs> True motives have, have surfaced. <sighs> this is not going... Uh... Well, you're an editor. You'll just cut it out. <laughs> <laughs> or I should just leave it in so everybody can know what a terrible, terrible human No, I love you. I'm glad I get the opportunity to join you on this special occasion for this wonderful movie. Well, it, it, it's our first musical we've talked about on the show. Um, you know, branching out, we mostly talk about horror and sci-fi. So, you know, we are the movie crew. We don't want to stick to just one genre type. Well, and you have a very diverse taste in, in movies. I mean, it's good to yeah showcase the, the breadth of the things that you like. Horror, horror and sci-fi is, is the bread and butter of the... Uh, well, it's your, the root. Yeah. Root of your loves. Uh, let, let's just go jump ahead into Moulin Rouge. Let's talk a little bit about the the cast and a little bit about the the history of this film. Now, we did mention it came out in 2001. Uh, a lot of musicals, live action musicals, when I say musicals now, um, from this point on, I'm not talking about the Disney stuff because, I mean, like Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast, they, those all had huge um, musical numbers in them. Don't all Disney movies have like... Well, the Pixar ones don't, but those are like Pixar, but I guess Disney owns them. But not all Disney movies. Like, The Great Mouse Detective, that's a Disney movie. It's got no... So when you think of Disney movies, The Great Mouse Detective is the one that comes to your mind? Well, I'm just saying. But like, Pocahontas, that has... That has music, yeah. It's like got Mulan. that... Mulan. 
Mulan has music. Yeah, I mean, most of them, you know. Have some big musical number. But I mean, so Snow White, like, we want to go way back. There's a lot of singing in that, too. That's right. Hi-ho. <laughs> that didn't come out right. I'm... <laughs> <laughs> I was not... I was talking about the song <laughs> that the... <laughs> <sighs> this is just not going... <laughs> this is not going well. This is... You know, we should only stick to Godzilla films from here on out. No. Oh my goodness! So I don't even know where we were going now that you're I put about, my you're, foot. You're qualifying the type of oh, musical this was. That's right. It, it was kind of responsible for the resurgence of the musical, the live action one. And oh, what was that? I'm trying to think of the movie the, with Richard Gere. We actually Chicago. saw Chicago. Yes, Chicago, which won the Academy Award the following year. You were well, so mad about that. Well, yeah. Well, Moulin Rouge, I thought was a better musical, and it was the previous year, and it lost. What won? Uh, a Beautiful Mind. I remember you were mad about that, too. It, well, it was a great year. It was uh, Godsford Park uh, that Robert Altman did uh, in the bedroom, which... Oh, that was the one. That's why you were mad. Oh, uh, that was good. That. Well, Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Rings, mm. Moulin Rouge, and A Beautiful Mind is what won out of all five of those films. 2001 was a good year. It was. It was a great year for cinema. So the year we met also. <laughs> it was a good year. But yeah, this was kind of a, a bring back um, to the musical, but it's it's definitely a modern musical. Didn't it only have one song that was not, that was like an original song for this movie? It was, but you know, when I was watching the special features, it wasn't even for this movie. It was originally what? written. Yeah, it was, the song is Come What May, that Uma uh, McGregor sings in, in the film. Uh, I think Nicole Kidman's on the track as well, but... Um, yeah, it's their song, baby. Yeah, it's, it's the secret song. Yeah. The secret lover song. Anyway, um, that song was written for Romeo and Juliet, and it wasn't used. And because it was written for another film, it was ineligible come Oscars. That's the other big thing about this musical. All the other music is from pop songs. It's just from existing pop music that's kind of all stitched together through this film. So, of course, that can't be qualified for original you know, score or original song at the Oscars. So nothing, nothing got nominated. Not a piece of music. That's that's amazing. I, I had no idea about the Come What May song. That's great. I, I, when we were rewatching it, I was trying to think of, well, you know, every other song in there is from something, and it's very, you know, it really stands out. And I was like, what's that from? But I didn't realize it was original for that. Well, actually, I guess not for that, for Romeo and Juliet. That's kind of neat. <laughs> but the cool thing is, is that they're using these pop songs, and they do a, a really good job of, like, telling the story and... And keeping the the movie flowing with the songs, and you think it'd be very like stitched together, and you could feel the stitching in the seams show here and there, but I don't know, it works for me. It's pretty amazing, just that it's not obscure pop songs. I mean, no. they're pretty big. Yeah, we brought that up when we were talking to each other, and we were watching it. Just how long did it take them to get the rights for everything? Two years. That's a I mean, because that's a majority of that movie. And you'd have to get those. You'd have to get that the rights cleared before the movie because all the songs in the film were recorded and finished before they even shot a frame of the film. So you can imagine the pre-production for this film, like just the amount of work that went into it before they even got the actors on a set and they could shoot anything. It's just, you don't want years and years of planning. And I wonder, I wonder how many songs they couldn't get because they only talked in the, in the special features about the one with Cat Stevens that they had done yeah. so much work on. Um, and like their test footage and all these things and that they, they really couldn't get the rights. So I wonder how many of the other ones that they 
couldn't or if they were just so persistent that uh, everybody else ended up caving in. I, I mean, I, it seemed like they got most of their stuff like, from what they were talking about on the on the behind the scenes. So Baz Luhrmann directed this, uh, and this is the final act in his Red Curtain trilogy that started with Strictly Ballroom, and then the second one is Romeo and Juliet, and this is the third. So why is the why is Romeo and Juliet considered? I think it's just because they all open up with that red curtain. Oh, uh, okay. Because uh, if you watch the movie, the very first thing is like, you know, you see a, uh, a conductor in front of an orchestra pit. Well, you don't see the pit. You just see the conductor. And he's, you can see a little bit of the stage and the curtains. These red curtains open up and you get the 20th Century Fox logo. Are, do they all have this? Are they all kind of period pieces and have a lot of music or? Uh, you know, I don't know. I've never seen Strictly Ballroom. I've only seen like little pieces of it here and there. But I've never actually sat down and watched that, so I have no idea. And of course, mm-hmm. Romeo and Juliet, uh, they, they they updated that one, though. That was set uh, in modern time because they're using guns. I remember that was like one of the really cool creative things they did with that was instead of having the swords, their guns were like, I don't know, .45 sword or something like that was the name of the firearm, which I don't think that's the name of a real gun, but it it was cool. But I, was that is that what Baz Luhrmann is that what he does, or did, is that just what he did for those two things? Like, he made it kind of hyper-real, super-saturated, super-modern. No, it's kind of his style. These, it does, you know, like he did, uh, you remember The Great Gatsby with Leonardo DiCaprio? Oh, I forgot I forgot that he did that. He did that as well. So he does these really big, lavish productions. I mean, I kind of like his style, for the most part. Well, it's, it's definitely stylistic. I mean, you... Yeah, uh, you just made a face. What? Well, I mean, like so, <laughs> some people like really hate. Like I remember, I was working at a theater when this movie was released, and we would have like old ladies walk out, just random people. But I remember a lot of old ladies walking out of this movie, and like in the first fifteen minutes in two thousand one, this was a lot for people. I could see that, especially the beginning, like when they start getting drunk and the green fairy shows up. The absinthe. And, yeah. I think some old people are like, what is going on? This is not the sound of music at all. Even well, I, I guess I didn't think about that if they if I don't know I didn't see the haven't watched the trailer, I don't know, in a long time. I don't know if they showcased you and McGregor singing that bit from the sound of music and I guess you could get a pretty wrong impression about what kind of period piece this might be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you could. I could see that. Yeah, you could definitely have some people walk out and that they they did. But really there's not a lot in here. And when you're thinking about like what could be offensive, I mean, I guess it still has, even though it's like, you know, Moulin Rouge is a brothel. It is a brothel. To some extent. There's not. No, it's it's a brothel. It's cabaret and brothel. Well, yeah, but they don't really showcase that part too, too much. I guess Nicole Kidman Uh, as the courtesan. I don't know. When he brings out the diamond dogs and he's like, come on, gentlemen, pick your ladies. But as far as like how much they show. No, no. I mean, the movie is pretty, you know. No, it's PG thirteen. You don't. There's not a lot of. There's no nudity. I don't think at all. I mean, there's talk of sex. Yeah. And there's a lot of sex jokes. I mean, that's it. It's just mm-hmm. you know. I don't know. It just came out in two thousand one. I think it was just really fast and. And, I mean, and was, when you think different. about the variety of music that's in there, like you mentioned that Nirvana was in there, and they would have yeah. some, you know, kind of just a lot of variety. I mean, the sound of music's in there for a little bit in the can can area. It's just. It's really loud, really over the top, and I could see that. I don't know, pretty surprising if you're used to singing in the rain or something. And the, I'm gra- I'm glad you brought up the can can because that's that that's a real big famous dance that is like historically um, 
a linked to the actual Moulin Rouge. I don't know if it originated there or it got real famous there. Well, I didn't realize that Moulin Rouge was a real place. Yeah. Um, Actually in Paris, right? Yeah. Like French high society guys would go with their top hats and everything and, you know, go slum in the underworld with the, the prostitutes and the, and the drugs and get drunk. And yeah, that's what they're, and it's called the whole Moulin Rouge means red meal. And there was a, a red windmill on top of the building. That's where Moulin Rouge comes from. I guess we haven't talked about the sets, but that, the sets are really cool. But the windmill and the elephant and the garden, like the whole look of the Moulin Rouge model and like the actual sets they built are really incredible. And they said that, I guess, that there were, really was an elephant um, opium, opium den yeah. at, the real, at the real Moulin Rouge that was, you know, what this was mimicked after or whatever. Yeah, yeah, they, they were... They were keeping it true to light. No, they, of course, took some liberties. Like, they showed an actual picture of the elephant, and the the elephant looked more like it was not actually in the garden, but kind of like a piece of it was over a fence where people could touch it. But, I mean, like, in the movie, it's, like, in the middle of the garden, and that's where Nicole Kidman's character, Satine, is, like, as her room is on the top of the elephant. Mm-hmm. Or in the elephant. I don't know. They don't really, they you don't really the see how room. much. Yeah. It was very exposed. Maybe she's charging peeping toms. Well... <laughs> Giving people a peek, so be interested and come in. Um, okay, so let's, I guess let's go into the cast here a little bit. Uh, we have Nicole Kidman. Who's Satine, the diamond, what did they call her? The sparkling diamond. Sparkling diamond. Or however yes. John Leguizamo's midget guy, whatever he says. What is it? What, Toulouse. Toulouse was his name. Toulouse was his name? There yeah, you go. and he was supposed to be a, a dwarf. Yes. With a lisp. A, d- a dwarf with a lisp dressed as a nun is how you first see him. <laughs> oh, how you first see him. Yeah. And then yes. he later plays the magical Zitar. That's right. That can only speak the truth. And of course, there's the narcoleptic uh, Ar- Argentinian that also shows up with him. That I don't know if you actually get his name. I, I don't think so. David Wenham was in, was in the credits. We were trying to figure out who he was because I didn't re- realize who Richard Roxborough was. And that, oh, so I was like, was right. that David Wenham? No, it wasn't. But it was Audrey, the initial composer that Ewan McGregor takes over as the writer. I didn't realize that that was David Wenham. Yeah. I, th- I thought that was a girl. Well, he did it very well. He did. I thought it was a female the entire time. I thought it was a female actress. Never well, and looked the, at and it he that d- hard. He doesn't show up again. I mean, it's just at that very beginning... Yeah, it's that beginning intro scene. And then never again. I guess it had to have been pretty fun for him. But he just shows up in things a lot, I feel like. And I get him confused with a couple of other actors. Oh, uh, David, uh, the guy from Harry Potter that turns into the werewolf. I forget that guy's Uh name. But yes, I get him confused with him all the time as well. And I guess they all kind of have that similar hair color to Richard Roxborough. Richard Roxborough is great in this. Well, and the... Is David Wenham the, the guy in 300 also that's yeah. like the storyteller? Yeah, the guy the that voice? loses the eye. Yeah. yeah. I think he's been in a lot of things. Oh, and Van Helsing. Didn't we just see him again in that? We'll yes. See that. Is that he's him in too? Va- he's in Van Helsing. Oh, and so is Richard Roxborough. He plays Dracula. That's Yeah, because we were trying to figure out where else we knew him from. I know, because the only thing I could think about where that guy I've seen him from was Mission Impossible 2. And I could not remember that whatsoever. As the henchman, that was the only film I could think of him from. I was like, man, what else have we? I know I've seen him in something else, and I mean, he's he's okay as Dracula and Van Helsing, but uh, I think that was more the director's fault. 
kind of killed his career, though, I think. How many people's career did that kill? Not Hugh Jackman's. Well, <laughs> or um, who's the actress in that? Underworld. Kate Beckinsale. Yeah. Yeah. But I thought, yeah, I thought Nicole Kidman did a great job singing. Um, yeah, the, I don't, honestly, I think that's pretty, that's pretty amazing that they really did sing yeah. their parts. Because that, that's not what you think of with either of them. Yeah, Ewan McGregor's the one that really surprised me that he could actually sing as well as he does in the film. But they make it sound like it was kind of, not like it's no big deal, but I don't know. Uh, Nicole Kidman makes a way bigger deal about how she really had to work at singing than Ewan McGregor does. And just when you watch the behind of the scenes, I mean, I don't know. It, it seems like he, I don't know, like it was like no big deal. I don't know. He always seems like that, though. I mean, you uh, see him I in those like, <laughs> you know, behind the scenes. And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm learning how to fight like a Jedi, a lightsaber. He's just. He's off goofing around. He seems like a cool guy. Uma McGregor does seem like an awesome guy. He he really, yeah. Uh, but when we were watching it, thinking about that it was 2001, and I, I couldn't help but think about Train Spotting. This is the guy from Train Spotting that's now like a this leading. Like five years later. A I leading think. man singing romantic ballads, playing a romantic writer. The dude from Train Spotting. That's right. <laughs> I don't know. It's. <laughs> It doesn't seem quite like it fits. So, yeah, I think he, I don't know, he seems pretty, he just seems like he's pretty versatile. Like, yeah. I, I don't know, before re-watching this, I don't know about thinking about him as a leading man. I guess we watched The Island not too long ago. I guess he yeah. was a leading man in that. They, you know, they blamed him, though, when that movie came out. They blamed him and Scarlett Johansson because they weren't big enough stars at the time, which is hilarious. Now, can you, can you even imagine saying Scarlett Johansson's not a big enough star? But that's what Michael Bay was like blaming that movie's box office failure for was. I enjoyed that them. movie. Yeah, I, I you know Michael Bay films. It wasn't a good movie or it didn't do well. No, it did not do very well financially. It was I think it was uh, Michael Bay's like first bomb. Hmm. Had Steve Buscemi in it too. That's right. You just want to bring up Steve Buscemi because you're obsessed with Boardwalk Empire right now. At the moment, yes, I am. <laughs> I'm really enjoying that. Well, and he's a pretty awesome actor too. He is. He's a good character actor. You know, I haven't seen him in a movie, though, in a really long time. I don't know. I feel like he always gets, like, smaller roles. Well, and we did just rewatch like, The Big Lebowski. Oh, Isn't yeah. Isn't that? As Donnie. <laughs> Damn it, Donnie. <laughs> You're out of your element. I was trying to think of what else we've... I mean, he's just been in so many things. I don't know. Second or third greatest comedy of all time. After Rushmore, The Graduate. You consider The Graduate a comedy? Yeah, The Graduate's a comedy. I mean, what else would you consider? I mean, I guess you could. It's a comedy drama, drama. but I mean, it's definitely a comedy. I mean, it's. I mean, just think about the ending. Funny. It's pretty kind of heavy. But isn't it kind of awkward, funny though? At the same time, and then like the sound of silence. I mean, yeah, it's kind of dark. Well, I mean, the, uh, comedy doesn't have to be just funny. Like you need lows to make your comedy high, and it, it that's not not all comedy is has to be like gross out like oh it's funny it's funny like some things are just situation humor that's funny or or black comedy and like there's different kinds of comedy here we're talking about you know there's well if you want to talk about better movies i mean i think graduate's got to be the big lebowski does it beat rushmore i mean I rushmore so. is like the graduate 2.0 so that's well, probably got to well, be no- hmm. it is it's about a high school student that falls in love with his teacher which what's the graduate about but the about? teacher doesn't fall in love with him well, no, she falls in love with Bill Murray, and it causes a revenge plot. It's like Graduate 2.0. No, it's like a. I don't think so. Disagree. <laughs> Wes Anderson would disagree with you because that's what he was thinking of when he made the movie. So there. he might have been inspired by, but I don't think I'd call it Graduate 2.0. It's whatever. It's a same basic, similar plot. Similar. It is not the same. 
So yes, the cast is really good it in Moulin really Rouge. Get us back on track. We here. didn't even bring up Jim Broadbent. Oh, we, oh, we definitely have to talk about him. I mean, he he is like the second best. Him and uh, what's it? Ruxborough's first name? Richard Ruxborough. Richard. Yeah, Richard. The, they're the two best performers in the movie. I think I love them. I could just sit down and watch those two guys do like a virgin all day long. <laughs> it, that is the it's weirdest. So awkward. It is the so weirdest. Awkward. Great scene. It's so perfect. I liked seeing how Jim Broadbent had to wear the big fat suit too. Yeah. To do his character. You know, he did not get nominated for this performance. He won the Oscar for best supporting As- actor this year, but he won it for Iris. It, this is the better performance of Jim Broadbent. Like this versus Iris. Like this is this is. I good. guess it seems so. I don't know, over the top and kind of not. I don't know if campy is the right word, but just very bombastic, very theatrical. It's not in the world of real, but that doesn't mean it's bad. But and you know, it had to take a lot of energy and effort to perpetuate that for. I don't know how long they had to do it, but I'm sure it was a long time. Oh, Jim Broadbent is moving more than the young. Like he's moving more in this film than Uma McGregor is. That's like, true. The way he's like spinning around and he's constantly got his hands up and he's he's always doing the the well, he's the presenter of the Moulin Rouge. He's the owner. Oh, when he was saying how the show must go on, he never lets it die. You know, he's the one that has to keep up. You know, the energy and make sure everyone is entertained when all the snafus happen. Oh, you're dying. Yeah. The show must go on. <laughs> Have some Queen music come on. I like I like how you had to highlight that. Well, our, our kids do like Queen, so we listen to the, what is it, the Highlanders? It's the, uh, I forget what We're the name of the song is. We're going to get off track on so many of these things. I know, but it's a, it's a kind of magic. That's what it is. This it's name a track. kind of magic. Uh, all right. Uh, I think we're going to take a break. We're going to play the trailer. And when we come back, we are going to get into a spoiler-filled discussion about the plot of Moulin Rouge. So you've been warned. He entered a world where fantasy is real. Where he could be anything he wanted. And where he would discover the most dangerous temptation of all. Come and get me, boys. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. I believe you were expecting me. Yes. Silly. I think you would fall in love with someone like me. I can't fall in love with anyone and make men believe what they want to believe. I believe in truth, freedom, and above all things, love. to provide the financial resources to make you a star. You don't have to wear that dress tonight. I require a contract that binds Satine to me exclusively. He could destroy everything. I don't care. We have each other. Make Christian believe you don't love him. He'll fight for me. Hurt him. Hurt him to save him. Whatever happens, no matter how bad things get, we love one another. And we're back. That was a trailer for Moulin Rouge. I was trying to, when we were watching the trailer, I was trying to think about what in it from the, from, like, how could it be maybe misleading as far as what mo- kind of movie it is? But it's really not. You know, it, I don't know, though. If you watch the trailer, it's kind of hard to get a sense that it's a musical. 
Well, that's true. I mean, there's. Yes, I mean, it's true. They do the Roxanne bit, but and they play music under it, but you don't see a lot of people singing in the trailer. It yeah. is a weird trailer for for a, a musical. The the trailer voice guy does a lot of talking. I kind of <laughs> wasn't ex- expecting that quite as much. Yeah, you know, it's two thousand one. <laughs> <laughs> We're we're still uh, you know left the, although I I do like that you know the in a world where two people collide I I do like that I don't know it's kind of classic I guess I don't know but I just I don't like this, it now for but... this type of movie though I just I don't know I wasn't expecting yeah expecting that as much you're expecting it for a big blockbuster uh, science fiction film from the nineties <laughs> yeah uh... you don't see Jim Broadbent in that trailer much no. I mean, if, if you you didn't, uh, but you know what? I don't think we saw down. John Leguizamo at all. Oh yeah, I don't yeah, think you're he right. was in that trailer at all. Yeah, it was really just Nicole Kidman, uh, Ewan McGregor, and Richard Roxborough. Yeah, yeah. Well, they had the um, narcoleptic Argentinian because he's the Roxanne person. Roxanne, you don't have to put on that red light. That's my least favorite. Uh, dance number and music bit in the entire film. Yeah, me too. Uh, I still like it a lot, but compared to the rest of them, that one just feels like there's not a lot of energy there. Yeah, but you can see how it fits with the story really well. Yeah, and I do like the intercutting. Uh, how they intercut the music scenes. They'll tell bits and pieces of the story all at once, almost in like a, in a montage, but they'll cut back to them singing and like a stage performance setting and I, now that I really dig that that form of editing and, and how that oh I'm an editor so but I I really dig it I think it works really well for story structure and and just to move the story along because they do cover a lot of ground in the runtime of this movie I know it's a little over two hours but it was it that long Yeah it doesn't feel that it doesn't long. feel long but I, I guess we should get into the plot of the film what this movie is about so Uma McGregor plays Christian a writer. Yeah, I guess a burgeoning writer. One, yeah, yeah, just, wanting to be writer. Just left home, you know, against his parents' wishes, or at least his dad's. You don't mention anything about his mom. Yeah, you don't see anything about the mom, but you, you get a lot of the dad yelling at, Stop with this foolish idea of love! This bohemian revolution, because it was 1899. Oh, no, it was 1900. Uh, Paris 1900 is what the movie said, right? Right, but it's a year long. The oh, that's a year right. Long, oh. So it starts off that's in 1899, right, the turn of the century. The Bohemian Revolution. I think it was, I guess, the first hippies. That makes love sense. Love and, you know. Love, art, freedom. Ar- and artists being artists and <laughs> love things. <laughs> and he gets, uh, Uma McGregor's Christian gets uh, an apartment right away. But he's never been in love. I like those little, like, moments right there where it breaks into kind of like a comic. And the, you hear the sound effects. Like, the sound effects even, like. And he's like, oh, I've never been in love. And we get these crash cuts. And you get sound effects in each one of the cuts. Like, dong, 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 ching. Yeah, that's cute. I it's think o- it's cute. Yeah, it's over the top. But this movie does have, like, it's got a lot of energy. And the comedy flows constantly throughout. Uh, except for when it gets depressing and grimdark. But then it'll have those points where it'll everything will move in super fast, jerky motion to kind of speed things up. And just, oh, yeah. I don't know. I, don't, I think it's cute. Oh, yeah, like when... um. They finally get upstairs and they start meeting John Leguizamo's character. Toulouse. Yes, he comes. He comes downstairs. Well, he didn't, he comes downstairs. The Argentinian, Argentinian falls through the roof. 
<laughs> and I, honestly, I thought initially when that happened, I thought he was some the Argentinian was this huge giant. Something about the perspective there. Oh when he yeah, fell I, through, can see I, that. I was like, I think I thought he was some monstrous, gigantic being. Well, I think I think that was intentional. You know, framing it that way. And this movie's bigger than life. Everything is is Except blown Toulouse, up. Because he's a dwarf. Yeah. And I was wondering if that's why they did it, because to accentuate how small John Leguizamo is supposed to be. But he was on his knees, and you can tell. If I have one little teeny technical gripe, I mean, that would really be it. Is you can tell John Leguizamo is walking on his knees sometimes. Uh, I never thought about it. Because, you know what I mean? Like, the way he's walking, he doesn't have knees. Well, that's true. You know what I mean? There's yeah. no His foot's not bending, so it's like, eh. It kind of ruins the effect a little bit, but... I mean, what are you, you going to do in 2001? What, they could have gotten an actual dwarf to play that part, but, you know. But also, talking about the singing chops, never thought about John Leguizamo singing. And he does sing in this. He constantly surprises me when I see him on screen. Can't quite peg him either, didn't. He showed some things I wasn't expecting in this movie. He's done comical things, and he's played like a grungy mobster type person i guess that's a role we've seen even the most probably, probably. <laughs> with the movies that we watch <laughs> but not like the sensitive okay. like bohemian artist that sings and so christian immediately uh Ewan mcgregor's character immediately gets hired to be a writer for this acting trooper spectacular spectacular <laughs> was that in the vernacular well that was the that was the name of their production right right that At- already existed the name well, yeah, the name existed, and then they hired Christian to come in, and he's going to write this whole thing, and they're going to set him up with Satine, and she's going to star in it, and they're going to be huge and successful. And initially, they were just trying to sell her on it, so then she could sell the investor on it. I don't know if they even had a plan, because they're just blowing smoke up Uma McGregor's ass, because it, they don't have anything worked out with They just want to do her. a production. Yeah. Yeah. They're just telling him all this crap just so he'll go. And they're like, yeah, look, we're, we're going to talk to her. This is going to be awesome. But I can't, yeah, I don't remember if they were supposed to sell it to, like if she agreed to it, that she would sell it to Zidler, who was uh, Jim Broadbent, if that was initially what they thought, or if they already knew about this other investor or what they were thinking. But they just wanted their bohemian masterpiece. Yeah, I think as long as they got the big lead actress at the Moulin Rouge, then... You know, they thought everything else would fall into place. That's maybe. right. The money yeah. will will come. It'll just it'll appear out of nowhere, man. <laughs> this chick will just bring money in left and right. This is the actress we need. So they go to the Moulin Rouge, and we get I guess the real big, the first real big dance number. They have another one with the uh, the sound of music in the apartment earlier. That's it's kind not of, really a dance. It's just you know. Yeah, it's just a musical number, but and it's not very long either. But this is like the first real big one when you get inside the Moulin Rouge and. The diamond dogs get brought out, um, and the, the prostitutes. They do the can can dance, and I I like this stuff. I mean, it's I don't know if it's good dance or bad dance. I don't know how to grade dance because I'm not a dancer. Don't know a lot about it, but this stuff looks cool. And the dresses, the way they're flying up, it looks it all looks amazing. It looks spectacular. And the um, behind the scenes, it was neat. Um, Baz Luhrmann was saying how that dance, the can can, was vi- a very violent dance like people would get hurt oh yeah they're just like kicking their legs up and i wouldn't think you'd be you know because you think about like the chorus girls on a stage you know doing the little line but 
You know, this know. this is like in the crowd, you know, it's like the running of the bulls, except it's like people would do in the can-can, you know, it's like you could really a picture, imagine someone getting hurt. <laughs> yeah, because I don't think they could see their feet with those giant dresses they had on. Oh, I guess that's true. Because, I mean, like, those dresses are huge, and because they're, they're having to hold them up just so they can kick their legs. I guess just in such close proximity and people really trying to sneak a peek. <laughs> if you were a, a short guy, oof, you kicked in the <laughs> face real easy. Be terrible. And Nicole Kidman's introduction is breathtaking. But she looks really good with that, that blue light and the, the costume. She definitely hair. stands out. Yeah. I don't know what it is. I don't know what they did with the, the blue there. I don't know if they put some kind of like extra gel on that and diffused it through something. But it, it looks really good on her. Like, it, I mean, she looks good and everything else, but I don't know what they did it here. accentuates her well. Yeah. She, she don't look like her, her skin glows. Good photography. Nicole Kidman is a lot taller than Ewan McGregor, but I don't I don't remember thinking about that too much. I mean, she's just a statuesque person. I don't know. Is, is she really that tall, or, or do we just yeah. remember being tall because we grew up in the 80s and 90s? And she we was just, always with Tom Cruise. Exactly. I don't know. <laughs> but, I mean, she's, but she does seem like she's, you know, statuesque. I mean, like porcelain skin. But no, it's just everything's so stark, starkly contrasted with her. In some areas, her hair looks a little bit darker. Her skin looks even more white, and her her eyes are just so piercingly blue. She drops down. She's a sparkling, sparkling diamond. Yeah, and she's supposed she's supposed to meet the Duke. Yes, and that, how they set that up. That's pretty neat. I thought that was neat how they both are. You know, got Richard Roxborough on one side and Ewan McGregor on the other. They can't see each other, but they're essentially back to back. And yeah. Jim Broadbent's like trying to point out, you know, they're trying to be all stealthy in their dance number. And he's trying to point out to which one's the Duke. And he's using Toulouse, uh, John Leguizamo's character, as the reference. And every time Nicole Kimmon looks over, you know, she sees the wrong one. And I don't know. It, I think that's pretty neat. Yeah, it's a nice little mistaken identity. And it, it's fun that they're doing it while she's like changing. And like all the girls are around him with their, their dresses kind of blocking Nicole Kidman. And they're doing all these things while they're on stage. And. Again, the energy comes into play here. It gets some good laughs. I mean, I, I, I agree. I do like that. And it, it, goes, it goes right into that to where Uma McGregor, and I don't know how he ends up in the, in the, oh, no, they sneak him in the elephant room, don't they? No, no. How does, how does he end up in the well, elephant room? Well, but it all goes from that, um, that dance where she mistakes him as the Duke. Doesn't he just go with her after the no, dance? No, no, because she has like some... Remember, she has like her their first illness. We get that first little moment where we know that she's ill and oh, she that's faints. Right. Yeah, so maybe they do just he gets there first. I don't know how he ends up in that room. I don't know because all the other like his friends are climbing the rope up the yeah, elephants. They climb up the butt because <laughs> they want to spy and like, oh, let's go see how our play is is being sold. You know, that's some good. Like, I guess that's where a lot of the sex jokes come in because she's trying to seduce the duke and. Who is actually Ewan McGregor. Well, it's not actually Ewan McGregor. Well, who she thinks. She thinks Ewan McGregor is the, the Duke. Yes. So she goes in there and... He just wants to read his poetry to <laughs> sell her on this, this play that he's the writer for. And he's super naive because he's never been in love. And she is writhing on the floor, acting like she is having like the best orgasm of her life. And it, that's, that's pretty cute. She's just trying to figure out how to turn him on. And he just wants to read his poetry. Keeps looking around cute. like woman. What are you doing? What? What? what he what does. He, on? There's one great look where Ewan McGregor like looks at her like this thing. This woman's crazy. It's a great look. 
and then he belts out uh his first little song and I, I I really like that. There's this wide shot that they keep going back to that has the Eiffel Tower in it. And when he first sings, you go to that wide shot and you just see all the lights in the city come on. All the lights in Paris just the minute his voice rings out. And they, they come back to it a couple of times. There's like a moment where all the gentlemen throw their top hats in the air and it cuts to the wide shots. And you can see the top hats come out of the Moulin Rouge and this ridiculous perspective that can no way exist. It's it's really cool, smart, uh, fun way uh, comic motif to keep cutting back to like that you know that same wide and it saves you money too. Well, and didn't they use that? They created the city of Paris in a model. Uh, yeah, well, not that. I think that was all digital. That piece. Oh, that giant wide shot. But yeah, they they did create a model like when they do all the camera stuff in the beginning and they're going in the in the Paris streets. Yeah, that's all done in a model, and they're just adding people digitally. Because, I mean, this entire film was shot on a set. Like, none of this is on location. None of this is outside. This is all in a soundstage, everything. And if it wasn't, it looks like it's outside. It's either a digital composite or a model shot. You know, in 2001, I'm, it's cool that they used both techniques. And I think this film, like, it's going to hold up a little bit better than some films that came after because of it. And they did say that that elephant, that they actually built like a 60-foot elephant. Oh, yeah. And that when they were on top of, you know, when Hugh McGregor and, and Nicole Kidman are on top of it, they're having to wear harnesses and wires so they can be safe. I mean, that's that's pretty awesome. I mean, that has to do something for an actor also to help get in the mood or whatever, stay in the character. I don't know. I think I'd be constantly worried about falling. <laughs> well, there's that too. <laughs> You'd just be like, oh, you know, this would be worse than if I trip because if I trip, I'm going to be like on a harness and then some grip is going to have to like pull me back onto the elephant. Mm. I'm going to have to climb back on the elephant. Make Everyone's going to make a huge big deal. And everyone's going to be like, dumb fucking actors. <laughs> God, you guys can't do anything right. And you're just going to be like, oh. But when they were in the in the elephant, before Nicole Kidman realizes he's not the Duke, the first song he belts out, that was a Elton John song, right? Mm-hmm. And when he goes, my gift is my song. Yes. That's what he belts out, isn't it? Yes, that is what he belts out. Okay. Or something like that. I don't know. I I'm terrible I at fucking remember the words. knowing <laughs> lyrics to songs. Don't ever ask me to sing a song for you. I will butcher, butcher it. Why are you laughing so heartily? Because I won't do it's it. true. <laughs> the Duke does come in. And then Nicole Kidman tries to use his lines of, it's a little bit funny, the feeling inside. So yeah. she says that to the Duke. And his eyes literally sparkle. Yes. That's a funny effect. I like that. Yeah, that was cute. And so eventually, Nicole Kidman and Ewan get, do get caught because he comes back to get his hat. <laughs> and they get caught like laying on top of each other or something. Yeah, because she passes out because the illness. Oh, because her sickness yeah. kicks in. Which I read on Wikipedia that it was tuberculosis. Well, they called it consumption. I don't know what that is. I don't either. That's why I asked you. I, I don't wonder if consumption was just like a catch-all for... Something consumed them and they died. Whatever. She's got some illness where she's coughing blood. And it makes her pass out. Yeah. Yeah. So she faints. Hugh McGregor's trying to revive her. And then the Duke comes back in to get his hat. They're discovered. And so then they have to feign that they were rehearsing. And he, the Duke's not buying it. And then Toulouse and all his friends... You know, who were spying on them anyway. <laughs> out the window. Out the window. Show up and you know, make it sound like they were actually rehearsing. So then they have to impromptu give this pitch to the Duke for their bohemian 
masterpiece play. Oh, that is a great music number. Yeah. Spectacular, spectacular. No words in the vernacular can describe this great event. You'll be dumb with wonderment. Returns are fixed at 10%. You must agree that's excellent. And on top of your feet, you'll be involved artistically. What do you mean by that? Like when they're going through the plot, they pretty much say the plot of this movie. Well, he well he's using their current situation right now to to form the plot, right? And then the actual resolution that he's gonna he starts going down is gonna end up being the resolution for the movie. Which I thought that was neat. Yeah, no, no, it's it's fun. I you know where it's gonna go for the most part outside of the sickness thing, but I do like they they have that line from the Duke where he's like, and in the end, should somebody die? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and everybody's just looking at him like, you're a psycho. Yes, yeah. <laughs> And I, I couldn't understand when they said it, when they were like, and you'll also have artistic input. Well, oh, that's the big thing. The Duke ends up getting like the deeds to Moulin Rouge for transferring it from like a cabaret brothel into a actual stage theater. Which I couldn't tell any difference. No, you can totally tell the difference. It's got, for one, it has like a whole, uh, like it's got a stage and then it's got seats in it. Nah. Like before it was all giant ballroom, babe. Well, then what they need the the wrecking ball for? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why they, yeah. Because they were going to build the stage for, I don't know why they needed the wrecking ball. That's true. But yeah, I don't know. They don't don't go into those specifics. But they needed the Duke to fund their production so that, and to change over the Moulin Rouge to an actual stage so that Satine could actually be a real actress. Which is her dream. Like every porn star's dream. <laughs> <laughs> womp, womp, womp. And Zidler tells her, we're all, we're all relying on you, Gosling. In the movie, they actually, you do see the, the Moulin Rouge, the interior ballroom. You do see it go from like that dance floor, slowly get transformed into the stage at the, at the ending of the movie, into the opening night of, um, of the spectacular, spectacular play. I guess we should mention, too, that the Duke also wants... Satine for his own. Oh, yeah, in the contract. Yeah, that's a big, huge plot point that yeah we, we, we just skipped that. over. Yeah, yeah the, he has the deed to the Moulin Rouge, and his support is contingent on Satine only being able to be with him, and she's a courtesan. Which means she's a whore. <laughs> no, that, that's what they say in the movie. I'm just saying. Do they ever say the word whore? Oh, yeah, they say whore. When? I don't remember. Oh, McGregor says it at the end. I've come to pay my whore. He throws money at uh, Nicole Kidman. He was angry. I know whore was said more than once. Courtesan. Okay. All right. Sounds much better. He was a courtesan. (laughs) Not Richard. Yeah. Richard Roxborough. The The Duke. The Duke. Yeah. The Duke. Um, Not the Duke of New York. Hey, number one. Escape from New York. Oh, my goodness, baby. I saw you like, uh, you were up there like thinking like, I know that from somewhere because my husband and says that. And you're going to get on me for making you side get sidetracked on this podcast? Baby, look, if you're going to get sidetracked. That had no need to come into this podcast whatsoever. <laughs> Baby, it's John Carpenter. You have to throw in John <sighs> <laughs> Well, okay, the Duke. All right, I, get, uh, I guess I see the connection. All right, okay. But anyway, all right, the, the teen is completely his. And so then he agrees to the production. 
He does. And he has a henchman with him. So you know that like this guy could do some damage. You know he's his bodyguard. Want him to, essentially. He calls him something like my manslave or Oh. Well, and you know that Jim Brod you can see that Jim Broadbent's character, Zidler, he actually hesitates when it's like you have to sign the entire deed to the Moulin Rouge and Satine is, you know, strictly his. And Zidler hesitates, but it makes it it seems like he has no choice. Uh, or either he thinks he's making the best choice. He's making like the... Because he definitely doesn't talk to Satine about this arrangement before he signs for them. And I like how that is. Like, evidently, he owns Satine, so he didn't have to talk to her. Well, baby, he's, like, he, is kind of a, he is kind of the pimp in this situation. I mean, like... He owns them. Yeah. He seems so nice <laughs> until he signs you away to a duke. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, you know, there's there's a lot of people. Well, I mean, even the main characters, though, if you think about it, what they're doing is it's not the best either. I mean, you understand why the Duke gets mad. I mean, they're running around like doing all this crazy shit behind his back. He's paying a fortune. Now, granted, he's buying her pretty much. But, I mean, he's paying a fortune for her. He's throwing all but this stuff on her. you can tell he's an evil dude. Like, well, they go out of their way to make sure that yeah, cause you know you, he's evil. Yeah, because when you go, go back all the way back to the elephant, he first comes in there to see her. <laughs> And she says, pleasure to meet you, Duke. And he's like, oh, I'm sure the pleasure is our mine. He's like, you know, I'm going to have some pleasure. You're going to have zip. And I do not care. The pleasure will be all mine. Yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. So, you know, it's not just that he wants to covet this thing. He wants, you know, he's domineering even from there. So, evil tendencies But they do give on. him, like, little moments. It's a little moment where he's like, ooh, a frog. When they're on that, uh... And then he goes off and kills it. <laughs> He tries to stomp on it while Nicole Kidman and Ewan McGregor are singing their secret song. Frog. It's so childlike, though. I don't know. It's childlike, and then you see him like going to try to stomp on the frog. It's like the sociopath child. I don't know. It's I don't know. It it just cracks me up so much. I don't know. I kind I kind of like the guy sometimes. That's all I'm saying. He's entertaining. He is extremely okay. entertaining. He is so awesome. Richard Roxborough is great in this movie. Uh, he's amazing. He makes me laugh. Um, Owen McGregor goes back to see Nicole Kidman in the elephant room, and that's when they actually fall in love. Oh, oh, on the and top of the, the elephant. Well, yeah. Well, because they, they go back to their own Yeah, they go back to their own rooms. Or whatever. They're drawing and, up the contracts. Yeah, they're separate. You know, Ewan's in his little writing hovel. Nicole Kidman in her extremely red corseted gown, yeah, which suits her very well. It's beautiful. Won an Academy Award for costume design and set decoration. And so they're they're in their separate areas, but they're kind of contemplating on their own, looking out their windows towards where the other one would be. But you get the sense that they wouldn't actually be able to see each other. Then she goes on top of the elephant, which has like a porch. I don't know how how does Hugh McGregor just show up. He climbs uh, up the elephant boat? Yeah, he just, he, somehow he climbs up there. Okay. Well, he appears. He gets he's up kind there. Of, and she's singing something to herself. And then they get into this dialogue about how she's, oh, and this is, this is the favorite. Oh, yeah. Favorite the, part. The, uh, favorite what, part. I forget what it's called. The elephant love melody or something like that. Where Ewan McGregor's like, all you need is love. Love is a many splendid thing. What? Love lifts us up where we belong. All you need is love. Please don't start that again. All you need is love. A girl has got to eat. All you need is love. She'll end up on the street. All you need <laughs> is love. Love is just a game. She's telling him essentially how naive he is. And 
you have to be practical about life. You can't throw away your life. But then they start throwing in like one-liners from songs. Oh yeah, no, it is. <laughs> it's like so many songs cut so back and forth. So many songs. It's but how they like All are telling the story. Love. Love, well, you know, and this isn't the first time he says like love is like oxygen. It's That's like, true. Love is like oxygen. It's like all you need. All you need is love. And then he eventually he kind of goes into song and he's like, "We could be heroes." And he says it very dramatic. The David Bowie song. Is that a David Bowie song? Yeah. I I didn't know where where it was from. We could be heroes just for one day. I feel like it's been redone so many times. I couldn't think about where it was actually from. Yeah, David Bowie's the original. That I know. Not all. I don't know where all these fr- the songs are from, and a lot of them. A lot of these songs have been redone over and over again. I mean, they're famous songs. They're yeah. really famous pop songs. But man, it, th- this is the scene though that. Let's go back, rewind the chapter again. Let's watch the scene one more time. Well, and even when you play like the soundtrack, like if we we need something to make us both smile, you'll you'll pull out this this part from it, and it always starts with the actual dialogue to lead yeah. into it. And I think I think more about that. The songs before more than I think about the movie when I'm thinking about this interaction. Oh, really? See, I love I love all the ch- the shot choices here. Every edit here, I think the editor is Jill Bilcock. Like you get like all these great moments of of uh, performance and close ups in, in from these two actors, and then you'll get a great two shot, and then it'll cut to a, just a reaction shot of somebody that's not singing that's just responding. Just reacting to what what the other person's singing, and it's so good. And then you'll get these great uh, uh, dolly shots where they'll just sweep down, and these crane shots where they're coming down the stairs, and they'll go into different sets. And then Ewan McGregor will pop around a corner and belt out a line, and Nicole Kidman turns around, and her hair is half blocking her face, and it's just it's shot and cut perfectly. It is very it's very dramatic. Yeah, well, especially with it ending with that giant, like, the fireworks. Well, you know, and they're, like, you know, they're on the big the big elephant. And, you know, I mean, I guess they, they did have to wear the harnesses. But, you know, I mean, it seems grand. it's grandiose, you know, in that scene. For, well, I mean, like, musicals are so kind of ridiculous to begin with. Like, well, nobody yeah. belts out in a fucking song in the middle of real life. You know what I mean? Like, nobody does that. Not when anybody else is listening, anyway. Touche. I mean, you know, seriously, there's got to be some People, times in your everybody life sings in the where, shower. like, you know, there's like, you're like, this, there'd be a soundtrack that would be perfect for this, and you'll start humming it in your head or well, we, start singing we it. We definitely don't all, you know, like, I don't walk down Main Street in Memphis and all of a sudden start. And a choreographed dance and snap, and you know, with <laughs> all these other all random the, people, all the extras around you just fall in line <laughs> with right. choreography. Comes out of the store. <laughs> you're like, oh yeah, I know this one. Yeah, I no. know I'm supposed to fall in line behind so, the main character. If you're gonna do a musical, like I think you should totally do it over the top. I think that's part of why I hated Chicago so much after after seeing this film, and then it was like stage theatrical, and it was yeah. missing so much of the the energy that was in this film, and no, if you can go over the top, like go over, go over the top. I like how. Oh, I like the. I like the moon. How like you know it'll end and like the the moon, the man in the moon oh, takes yeah, over singing. I yes. mean, like like that's just how dramatic it is. Oh. I mean, just how it's you know just all so dramatic and there's the fireworks that come out of nowhere just because that's how it should be if like you're in love or whatever. It's such a dramatic, unreal thing. Yeah, I mean, they they do a lot of those where they'll, they'll break those uh, moments of reality. Like, there's a, a dance number that they 
they're like dancing on, on the clouds above the Moulin yeah. Rouge, mm-hmm. and they do a singing in the rain number instead of the the lamp post where um, Gene Kelly runs up on the lamp post and singing in the rain with the umbrella. Owen McGregor's got an umbrella and he gets up on the Eiffel Tower. You know, like he's like King Kong, but he's swinging on it like Gene Kelly's. You know, it, these it's fun. Exactly, and it feels good. Time passes in the film. We get a lot of montage sequences. I guess it's a lot of rehearsals, right? Where you're kind of seeing them fit in their love, their love story, you know, behind the Duke's back. You got got a lot of stuff with like the, uh, the Duke is constantly wanting to have the dinner with Satine and she's constantly making excuses of why she can't go. Mostly rehearsals, which Ewan McGregor can come up with some new scenes. The lovers that meet at eight o'clock tonight. The, yeah, it's it, right the, in front of his face. They're not very subtle about no. it at all. <laughs> well, the Duke will be sitting there, and they're having these rehearsals, and it's supposed to be the narcoleptic Argentinian that's playing the penniless zitar player in the play. But every time there's some singing, like when when they finally get to the secret song or whatever, when any time they're singing, it's you and McGregor who's the writer. And Satine, the narcoleptic Argentinian penniless guitar player. <laughs> Why are they giving this guy like the lead role? I don't, I don't get it. Like you know, he's gonna pass out in the opening <laughs> night play. You know it. I mean, look at this guy. This play is like two hours long. This is too big of a chance here. Well, I guess because John Leguizamo wanted to be the Zitar that itself, is and Zidler wanted to be the evil Maharaja. Because who could nobody could play it better, and nobody will. <laughs> that was great. That was. There's a lot of great little lines like that if you uh, if you listen closely to them. Uh, the Duke's getting to the point where he's like, "I need to have this dinner tonight." He goes to Zidler. He's like, "She needs to have this dinner with me tonight." I don't. I don't know if he actually gave an ultimatum. And about that same moment, Zidler sees Nicole Kidman and Ewan McGregor frolicking. Yeah, he does find out behind the curtains, and so he discovers them. He tells her she's got to cut it out. Yeah. I mean, she's it's signed on the dotted line. She, he owns and, the Moulin Rouge. Yeah. What are you doing? And then she's like, oh, it's just a, it's just an infatuation. It's not anything serious, even though she knows better. By that point, they're totally in love. But she says she will go to dinner with the Duke, right? Yeah. And then she has like a, another one of those spells where she gets sick again. Yeah. Both the Duke <laughs> and Ewan McGregor are... They're both being stood up, and it's really that she's sick. She's fallen out, and her she's being attended, I guess, in her dressing room, but nobody knows. And I'm sure Zidler doesn't want the Duke to know she's sick, because he's pretty much bought damaged goods at that I don't point. know, that, that's because he doesn't know yet at that moment, so that's kind of un- unclear. I don't know, what would he well, do? Well, he knew that she was sick. He didn't know she was dying. Yeah. And he, they, he even keeps it from Satine. Yeah, I mean, when the, well, and he even tells, like, the other attendant lady, like, we're not going to tell her. But, I mean, you get the sense that he's trying to not tell her for her own good. What kind of sense does that make? Well, I mean, like, you know, if she's... Jim Broadbent's a little, I don't know, he's got got some questions here. I got some questions about this guy. I don't know. Well, I I got the sense that he didn't want to tell her for her own good. Because then, you know, what if you Because then she'd probably leave with the writer and they she'd go die somewhere in a hut with the guy she loves down by the ocean for the rest of her little two weeks. Or she'd just be miserable. Like, if she didn't know, she lives her life to the fullest. Well, if she doesn't know, she's going to end up with the Duke and still be unhappy and then just die unhappy. 
He, I, no, he's not telling her because he's a douchebag. Well, okay, he's not a douchebag. He's greedy. He's not telling her because he's greedy. Some of both. Okay, all right. I'll split hairs with you. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. Does the Duke ever know she dies? I don't know. He just walks out at the end of the movie. He's just like, well, screw this. Yeah. Or actually gets knocked out, doesn't he? This does leave to the great, uh, it's like a virgin scene, which is. Oh, when the du- when the Ziddler's trying to pacify the Duke, because yeah. he's at his wit's end. He's like got the special tower dinner plan for Satine, and she's passed out sickly being attended to and this tower is like ridiculously high above it's like it's like the eiffel tower it looks like dracula's tower oh, maybe yeah. only because i knew that now that i know richard broadbent was I, I guess i meant it's as high as the eiffel Tower. yeah it's huge to say. it's huge but then you jim broadbent i don't even know where he would come up with something like that but she's confessing and he says it you know way over to the top and you know, he and then he tries to explain to the Duke that she wanted to be like a virgin. I love that they took Madonna's song when they're talking about a prostitute. <laughs> well, you know, it fits very well. But when when Jim Broadbent is like, he's he really gets into this. He's like, you make her feel so good, and it sounds inside. so it sounds so awkward. It's so gross. It is awkward, so and they're very—they're like a millimeter, two millimeters from each other's faces, shiny and new. But then it gets even creepy when the uh, the Duke, like about halfway through the song, like he's like, oh, "Okay," and then he starts taking over the song, and he brings up his like claw hands, <laughs> and he starts chasing Bryn Broadrand around. And oh gosh, he starts getting all rapey. Oof. And, you, and Jim Broadbent even gets like a look of scaredness I would too in his face <laughs> thin mustache man stay away and J- I remember uh, Richard Roxborough was like that's the funniest experience I guess he, he had had on a movie I can't I mean can you imagine I mean, yeah. being an actor like trying to keep a straight face when some of this stuff's going on or even what some of the people are doing in the background like with the tablecloths and with the well, the jelly molds that look like boobs yeah I don't quite get that <laughs> well I mean guys you know and they just wanted to hold but they're still that look like their dudes. characters are still heterosexual and they're dudes so and they're just trying to play a part in their song and they're just like hey give us the jello it looks like boobies but evidently that was enough to pacify the duke one more time ewan mcgregor like satine tells ewan mcgregor like she's gonna have to sleep with the duke the at duke. some point like yeah. she's just being real with them i'm just gonna have to sleep with them it's not gonna mean anything that's the what, mon- what's that money proposal thing with uh, Robert Redford? decent Red- proposal. Yeah. yeah. But you know, it's like, you know, if, if you just let me sleep with them this one time, there'll be nothing attached to it. But it's not going to be just one time. And she knows that. Oh, I, I think she knows that, right? She knows that at this point in the movie. I'm well, anyway, she, you know, she tells them, like, you're going like, to be... Like, what they're doing is kind of shitty, too. Well, it's, she's, she's trying to tell Ewan McGregor that, you know, she knows he'll be jealous. And then he comes up with the secret song. No matter what they're going through, they can always sing this song. They'll know that each other, they love each other. And so I don't know why he thinks that's going to make him not feel jealous. <laughs> because it totally doesn't work when she does have to go have dinner with the Duke. Because that one girl ruins the oh, whole thing. Yeah. That fucking brunette bitch just comes up out of nowhere and gives the whole thing away. Like, oh, why would the... Uh, Penny, why would she go? Why would the courtesan go for the penniless writer instead of the? Oh, did I say right? I meant the sitar player. Bitch, bitch. <laughs> oh! 
And then doesn't the Duke say something? He's like, that's when he wants to change the whole play. Yeah, that's when he's he wants like, to she's change going, the she's going, she's going to fall in love with the Maharaja. It's like, why, why shouldn't he be with the, she be with the Maharaja? And then doesn't Ewan McGregor go, because she doesn't love you. <laughs> he doesn't, she doesn't love him. Everyone looks real awkward, like, oh, man, look, this guy didn't know. Everybody else knew. Bro, you didn't know? Satine comes into the situation, kind of cools everything out. Does a little seduction. She says that the writer's just full of crazy ideas. That's right. It's not her crazy ideas. He's but infatuated she, with me. But, you know, she they need him for his talent, so she placates him. So she convinces the Duke again. <laughs> to have dinner. And isn't it supposed to be... To negotiate for the ending. To save Christian's ending to his play. Or, I guess everybody wants that ending. Nobody wants the evil Maharaja to... Win the Win. day. Yeah, at the end of the play. Nobody wants that. And then she doesn't she when she's out on the veranda or whatever with the Duke. Everything's going well. She's you know, he gives her some lavish necklace. It's like a choker. Oh my god. Of diamonds. I think that's the piece of jewelry. Like at the time that the film was made, that was the most expensive prop. Jewelry oh, really? prop. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that was the one. There's something that she wears. It's either that or the heart. I'm not hundred percent sure. Well, then she goes out on the veranda and she sees Christian walking by because he's distraught. Yes, with a bunch of red lights spilling behind him and he's beautiful. <laughs> you know you I, saw that red light. I didn't pay a bit of attention to that. It was gorgeous red light behind him. But then Satine breaks down. You know, she's been the cool as a cucumber the whole time, doing what she has to do, placate the Duke, deal with Christian's over-emotional butt. And she stands up, though, in the scene. Yeah, she does. And she's like, no, not going to do it. And then Duke gets all crazy. I mean, this is a, this is attempted rape. Slash maybe even murder. You don't know how far he's going to go with it. But he's, no, he's not going to kill her. He just wants, you know, he's just going to beat her and rape her continuously for the rest of her life is what his plan is. It's how it, it seems. It appears that way. And then the, the <laughs> dude, this other dude that's one of the backup singers. That dancers, is barely is in the film. Barely in the film, but he's like. He's a big black dude. Yep, and he just shows up out of nowhere. And takes the the Duke out. How the fuck did this guy get in here? I don't know. This is the Good looking out. Biggest. Good looking out, but it's a huge, just like, what the hell moment. Like, if this guy's in this tower, because we've already talked about how high up this tower is. It looks like Dracula's castle. And this dude, I guess, ran in and took everybody out. Well, he might, I mean, he he was pretty stealthy. You might have just slipped in here, there, just I looking guess. out for Satine. I mean, Which, you know, you got to think about if it. If he had a Batman Some, grappler gun, maybe he could have shot. But so, uh, uh, the, the prize courtesan that Satine is. Oh, so you think he's like a backup bodyguard? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there should be, there's probably people looking out for her to make sure, you know, that no one gets too rough. I mean, so he's I'm like sure, the. Like, there was people like that. Okay, I got you. So before he was like a backup singer in the Moulin Rouge Theater production, I mean, he's the he one that catches the... her when she falls from the swing when she's doing the first time she has the sickness. Oh, that's true. I over. guess he was one of the dancers. There. So I mean, I, you you can tell like he looks after her to some extent. You know, he feels personally like he needs to look after her, or I... he's. I mean, it's a shortcut. It's a shortcut. Yeah, it's a little lazy. That's what I'm saying. Well, I'm not watching this movie though for its plot. I'll be honest with you, I'm not watching. Someone it for its was plot. looking out. 
Someone someone <laughs> knew the Duke was evil. My wife just said, it doesn't matter. Your complaint means nothing. Moving <laughs> on. Well, it worked well. This guy who is kind no, of her savior, you know, he's her little, you know, guardian angel. But the first angel. time you watch the movie, it is a, what the fuck? Who is that Yeah, where did he come guy? from? Like, they never show how he gets there, where he came from. Well, the first time you watch the movie, like, he is literally, like, I, I maybe remember him from, like, one shot before. Well, I mean, yeah, because he's the one. Well, no, he's always there. Like, every time she gets sick, he's there. But he's mostly in the background. I'm mostly looking at Nicole Kidman and Uma McGregor make googly eyes at each other. I'm not looking at, like, the, you know what I mean? Like, like the brunette girl that, like, outs the... Um, their love affair. Yeah, their love affair. Outs Uma McGregor and um, uh, Nicole Kidman. Watching the movie multiple times, like, I see her presence throughout the film. But watching it the first time, it's just kind of like, who is that person? I remember them for that one scene earlier, and then that why why did why does she dislike these person? You watch it a second or third time. Again, this movie's really fast, a lot of high energy, so you do miss a lot. This is a movie you get a lot from repeat viewings, so you go back and watch it, and it is there. But the first time you see a movie, it is just kind of like that guy came out of nowhere. Well, he did come out of nowhere. He is part of the film before that point. It's just you no, don't know I, I where he gets, how he gets to that point where he's. You know, watching over her, even though he's generally there when something happens to her. I don't even think they ever say his name. I don't remember. I mean, like, after the scene in the in the movie, it, it doesn't really matter anyway. Well, he's part of Spectacular Spectacular. Yeah, he's he's a background. I mean, like, this is his moment that he yeah. exists in the movie for. Yeah, he saves her. Yeah. But then every all, everybody's in trouble at this point. Yeah. Um, Nicole Kidman shows back up at Uma McGregor. They decide they're going to leave. They're going to run off together. She's going to go get her things. She runs into Jim Brawlbant. Jim Brawlbant's like, you're going to die. You have to let Christian go or they're going to kill him. And you're going to die anyway. I did like that. That does make sense. But to like save Uma McGregor's character. You have a terminal disease. You're going to be dead anyway. Well, just... why wouldn't she just tell him, though? Because he'd stay and then he'd be dead. You know, if, if he loved her, he'd be like, you know, I want to spend the your last days. I want to spend them with you. I mean, just be like, look, I'm dying. This dude wants to kill you. I mean, baby, Nicole Kidman was getting real with Christian before earlier in this movie. I mean, he wasn't taking much of it. He's like, look, I'll just sing you a song. Don't worry. It's all good. (laughs) That's true. And maybe if he'd sung to her more, she could have lived. You, wow, do you think you you think Christian could could save Satine via song? Well, okay, all right, all right. If only he'd sung to her more. It is, it is, it is kind of sad though. Like this film does have some some sad moments in it. For all its comedy and all the love we're laughing, it it does have some. Like the end is a good tearjerker. It's spectacular, spectacular. Which they do actually get to perform. They do one time. It's got the terrible ending in it though. Yeah, they actually do show how that would play out, and the audience is still like loving it. Well, they Did don't you- actually show the Maya Raja win. Though. Well, but I guess they were getting to that point. Yeah, and then uh, Ewan McGregor kind of like. Well, they show like the Maharaja be like, "She's mine." Jim Broadbent like holding on to her. Well, I think that was supposed to be the midpoint of the, of the play. Oh, the bad guy's gonna win. It's just like in those old uh, '90s action films where that big guy comes out and he starts beating up John Claude Van Damme really well. <laughs> but you're like, no, you can't do that. It's John Claude Van Damme. You know he's coming back. Jean-Claude Van Damme did not have any place in this podcast whatsoever. Baby, I'm just I'm just I'm just trying to relate it to my audience. Well, here. but you know, all right, so going back a moment, before they actually get to spectacular spectacular, 
uh, Zatine does try to convince Christian that she doesn't love him. Yeah, she does. That the Duke made her an offer to make all of her wildest dreams come true. All she really wants is the money. You know, that Christian can't provide that for her. So she's going to be with the Duke and he just needs to go away. And even though that was a plot of Spectacular Spectacular that they already told us at the beginning of the movie, it was actually effective. It, it, yeah, it does, still, it does still work. He gets all heartbroken and starts feeling sorry for himself, and then he, then he starts getting mad. I'm going to make her tell me that she doesn't love me to my face. And, and I'll I'm, pay that whore yeah. my money. He hawks his typewriter. He storms up into Spectacular Spectacular. And he goes backstage, and of course, at this point, like the bodyguard, if he even sees Uma McGregor there, he's going to shoot him on sight. Yep, he's going to kill him. Um, and Toulouse, he can't face it. He's like, I know that she loves you. Christian's not hearing it. Toulouse is like, oh, in the scene I've got to find a way to prove it. I know she still loves him. This is still oh, there. This okay. Is oh, yeah, like no, he's, yeah, you're right. He's you're dressed right. as like the Zatar. Yeah. And he's seeing he's seeing the bodyguard with the gun that's going to try and kill Christian. Christian's yeah, being right. a jerk to Satine, who's like dying. It's just a messed up situation. And the bodyguard's just trying to kill him. Then the narcoleptic Argentinian passes out. It's a cousin and an in-law away from Jerry Springer. <laughs> <laughs> so the narcoleptic Argentinian passes out. The, I mean, the big thing is that they end up on stage. Yeah, Christian takes over his outfit because yeah. he's the penniless guitar player exactly. he takes over the role that was really his to begin with and they play this huge confrontation out on stage and like everybody uh, everybody actually works together to yeah. try and keep the gun well, away from the bodyguard well yeah but i mean the the, the players uh, the actors in the play they they keep the the play going she while Ua going. mcgregor is yeah it's just like i'm pam a whore and it's like, okay, well, this works with the theme of the play. That's miraculous. Thank you. Let's keep going. Satine actually starts singing that song. He starts seeking, doing the love, that secret love song. The Come What May song. I'm not going to lie. It, 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 yeah, it'll make you tear up a little bit. Yeah, it gets you. Yeah. And then Jim. Hollywood uh, knows how to hit the heartstrings. Man. Richard. Richard. Roxborough. Roxborough. Yeah. So his character sees the gun. He's gonna he's gonna go for it. He's gonna kill him. Oh yeah, because they're getting snocked out of the bodyguard's hands. Yep. Doesn't Ziggler end up punching him? It was Ziddler. Ziddler ends it. Ends him. Doesn't he end up hitting him in the yeah. face? And then they they um the curtain falls and then she dies. It goes from like real feel good, like beautiful moment to really dark, sad moment. It and this film does that a lot. And the, the tonal shifts do not bother me at all in the film. No, mm mm. You know, Baz Luhrmann, I think he handles that really well. And I, he had a huge team of fucking writers. I saw there were only two writers credited in this film. But on the DVD extras, they had like a freaking room of like 10 or 15 writers in there. It sucks that they all those people didn't get credited. but mm. They know. They know what they did. Yeah. Well, and then uh, Satine tells Christian that he has to write their story. And that's pretty much it. Yeah, well, that's where yeah they get the bookends in in there, but yeah, you know they they do handle the the tonal shifts very well. What do you, what, do you, what do you think of this as a film? Would you recommend this to somebody? Oh, ab- yeah, absolutely. I mean, even though it ends, I mean, it begins and it ends, and you know, Christian is completely depressed and he's writing their story in a cathartic way. It said so the bookends are totally depressing. It is a movie about love, 
And I think yes. we continually reference it because it's, it's you know, it just it is it does have so many feel good areas to invoke love. Yeah, it's just like, I would say like this and uh, Love Actuary are probably our our fa- like our favorite romantic movies that we go or like romantic comedies that can we kind of go back to. I wouldn't call this a romantic comedy it's musical, no. but you know what I mean. But I mean, they have that romantic feel to it that's just yeah. undeniable, and those sweet spots of it where you know there's their music and the love, and it's just we can't play that those those areas those music numbers without smiling. That's yeah, true. And there's something to be said for that, I think. You know, and that that's what carries. I mean, the bookends when you actually watch the movie that are dark and depressing, but the, what we take with us from it is the love and it's a story about love it's it's a good movie it's well done and it was just and especially at the time i mean it was it's different it is very different again like i mean you're gonna love or hate this movie i have not met many people that are like oh yeah moulin rouge yeah that's okay it's you either like it or you don't and i was in film school when this film came out and i'm not gonna lie i i lied to a couple people and, and told people i disliked this movie just because I did not even want to have a conversation about it. I just did not even want to open the can of worms up. Is that just because it was a musical and you were like a teenage? Well, it's, it's a musical. And at that, at that point, it was very much like, oh, this is too MTV. It's too fast cut. It's too editing. And I don't really subscribe to that. And it, it's all based on like the story you're telling and, and how you're telling it in your, in your setting. I mean, that's what's great about a director. A director is somebody that comes in with a vision. Like Steven Spielberg would probably have told this story like very slow, very different, very classic. It probably would have made it look like more Chicago. Baz Luhrmann comes in and you get Moulin Rouge that we have. There's something different here. I don't want to say like he's an auteur, but he does have a style. And I mean, you can definitely see it on screen. I guess that does make him an auteur. I don't know. That's a theory I don't know if I believe in. But Well, I could see people saying that if you, know, if you didn't have enough originality – to come up with your own story that could be uh, survive on its own, you needed to use all these classic songs that everybody already has some nostalgia for, and put a spin on it. And yeah, then that was a lot of criticism about that. You're you right. know that I, I could potentially see someone saying that, but I don't. I don't know. I think the way it was all woven together, those songs enhanced everything. But I don't think. I mean, what you know? If See, I love how the songs are woven together, I, I, think I mean, I do too. Great. I do, and I mean, I completely enjoy it. But what it it's it doesn't take away from the originality of the movie because they did use all of these artistic no, things yeah, exactly. that were from other people, but they were used very well, and they're so different, like the sound of music and Nirvana. No, I think there is an art form in taking all that pre-existing stuff and stitching it together as well as they did, you know, to to make it fit this and i think they made it into something you know it's not just yeah, it's agree. not because of lack of originality that you had to use all these things to make it entertaining from things that were already entertaining but i could see why you know someone might argue that uh you know i wonder why he didn't put hugh jackman in this hugh jackman does like to sing and he's australian why yeah that is a very good point and he was in baz Luhrmann thing you know before. why because well he was but after this movie oh, australia yeah australia was after this hmm. and you have to remember nobody knew who hugh jackman was until the year 2000 this was already in production this came out in 2001 uh, so nobody knew who hugh jackman was so it could have been movie. hugh jackman they totally 
And I guess, I guess Leonardo DiCaprio couldn't sing. But, you know, hey, delivering Shakespearean dialogue and not and, sounding like a douchebag is uh, an art form. Because you either sound like you don't know what you're talking about or a douchebag usually. You know, where you just you sound very arrogant and um, pretentious and kind of snobby, making it so like people can understand it just by the way you you're, you're speaking and through your performance you can get that across to an audience that may not understand. Like, I bite my thumb at you, sir. What the hell does that mean? Well, it means he's giving him the middle finger. Nobody's gonna know. Like, I bite my thumb at you, sir. But if you have an actor say that line and portray it with the right gusto on a stage. You're going to know like what he's doing is like, you know, giving him the up yours or flipping him the bird. I, I think, you know what? I think this is the best musical of the 21st century. What are some other ones? Uh, well, Chicago is one we named. Uh, La La Land came out not too long ago. Mm. Burlesque with Cher. Um, you love Cher. Rent. I can't think anymore off the top of my head, but I mean, this, this is, this is the one I watch over and over again. I don't watch anything else. Um, well, think about 2001. That was 16 years ago. Yeah, I don't. There's not a single musical I watch made in the last 20 years more than this one. All right, so that's going to do it for us tonight. Uh, if you guys want to get in touch with us, our email address is themoviecrew at gmail.com. That's themoviecrew and crew spelled C R E W E extra E at the end of the word crew at gmail.com. Uh, if you guys could leave us a five star rating or just any rating on iTunes and Stitcher, we would surely appreciate that. And like always, we're going to close out the show with a little bit from the soundtrack. I think we're definitely going to play the elephant love song melody. Yes. Uh, for sure. But I think we should, you know, this is a musical. We should play at least two tracks here. Yeah, we should do the Come What May. Come What May to follow it up? Yeah, but the, my favorite's Elephant. All right, so we're going to play Elephant Love Melody, followed by Come What May. Uh, these are sung by the stars of the film, Uma McGregor and Nicole Kidman, respectively. Enjoy. Love is a many splendid thing. What? Love lifts us up where we belong. All you need is love. Please don't start that again. All what? you need is love. A girl has got to eat. All you need is love. She'll end up on the street. All you need <laughs> is love. Love is just a game. I was made for loving you, baby. You were made for loving me. The only way of loving me, baby, is to pay a lovely fee. Just one night, just one night. There's no way, cause you can't pay. In the name of love, one night in the name of love. I won't give in to you Don't leave me this way I can't survive Without your sweet love Oh baby Don't leave me this way You'd think that people Would have had enough Of silly love songs I look around me and I see it isn't so, <laughs> no. Some people want to fill the world with silly love songs. Well, what's wrong with that? I'd like to know. Cause here I go again. Love left us up where we belong. 
just for one day. You, you will be me. No, I won't. And I, I'll drink all the time. We should be lovers. We can't do that. We should be lovers, and that's a fact.
My wife is getting sleepy because it's 930. <laughs> it's 930 at night. She's it's like my bedtime. <clears throat> I'm usually asleep when you do these podcasts. 